millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why are there no brilliant young theoreticians anymore? That's a question I'm often asked at public events by people who look back on the brilliant young generation that did so much to create quantum mechanics almost a century ago. Where are the Heisenbergs, Pauli's and Dirac's of today? Some commentators on the physics scene believe that fundamental physics has lost its way and that the best young people are on a hiding to nothing, working on theoretical schemes that are going nowhere. So I thought it would be a good idea to hear from two of today's most brilliant young theoreticians to hear what they think about the state of their subject. My name is Graham Farmelow and I'm the author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers about the mysterious symbiotic relationship between advanced mathematics and the search for the most basic laws of nature. The two theoreticians we meet today are right at the frontiers of two of the hottest topics in modern theoretical physics. First up will be the Portuguese Pedro Vieira, based at the Perimeter Institute in Waterloo, Canada. He's a virtuoso quantum field theorist, the branch of physics that's a descendant of Maxwell's theory of electricity and magnetism. Then I'll be talking to the American Douglas Stanford, now based at Stanford University and doing pioneering work on black holes. I spoke to them both last summer at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and asked what most interests them now on the agenda of theoretical physics and whether they have any concerns that their subject has indeed lost its way. Their answers were fascinating and they tell us a lot about the approach taken by the young generation of theoreticians. I began by asking Pedro what first interested him in physics. I think it's really, uh, I think it's the power of explanations. So physics is something which is that you understand something that is true and then you explain it. I think this explanation, this act of explaining, of understanding something that is true, taking some argument of why something behaves in a certain way and explaining I think in many areas of science, which are more descriptive, don't, it doesn't have this amount of explaining to do, mm-hmm. right? If you describe biology and species and so on, it's very beautiful, and very, but it's very descriptive. You don't explain why a bird uh, has a given set of colors or something. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess that's what pushed me to physics. So it's, it's, it's the, the specificity, the uh, precision of, of mathematics that, that, that attracted you, is that right? Yeah, and the fact that you have this, uh, I think in other branches, maybe of science and of uh, not just science, but say game theory, for example, which is not exactly physics, where you try to explain why things work and how people interact in given ways rather than others, the logic of it. I think it's the existence of logic more than formal mathematics, I think. Theoreticians of Vieira's ilk don't spend much time trying to account for the results of new experiments, nor do they spend much time talking with experimenters. Is he worried about this state of affairs? No, there is a huge spectrum, and sometimes we draw inspiration from experiment. 
but uh, it's not uh, in a day-to-day -day life of a theoretical physicist. We don't look at graphs from experiments at precise data points. We kind of are inspired by puzzles that don't work, by dark energy, dark matter, and so on, by big puzzles and big questions that we want to understand, but not precise data points. So that's one, one, one part of the answer. Mm. The other is that there is a big spectrum in understanding in, from engineering to mathematics. And theoretical physics is somewhere in between. So when we understand physics, then we can apply it for developing technology. And then we need all aspects of physics from thermodynamics, quantum mechanics, everything at the same time, all laws at the same time. Things get very complicated, but very rich when we want to develop technology. When we want to develop ideas, we simplify things. We focus on one aspect. We don't try, we're not trying to build an iPad. We are trying to understand some very sharp physical law. Then we simplify. And sometimes we simplify either by focusing on one physical effect or even by imagining simplified universes where the laws of physics are simpler than they are in our universe. But in these simplified universes, we can compute. And we can calculate and we can develop intuition. It's like going to a mental gym, doing some computations, developing our physical intuition, and then coming back to the real world. But how do you know that's going to be relevant? How do you know these other universes are going to be relevant to the real world? So time and time again, physicists have been toying with this uh, idea of doing research, of thinking of thought experiments, for example. The idea of thought experiment is an extreme case of this. Mm. It's when theoretical physicists, rather than doing an experiment, they imagine experiments. Like Einstein imagined, I'm falling. That's a very simple experiment. Einstein falling. He imagined he fell. Falling freely from a roof. Falling freely from a roof. That's uh, one of his favorite experiments. It's a very simple experiment. It's a mm. thought experiment. He never jumped off a roof. And so thinking about thought experiments is a very powerful tool. And we do it Every day, we imagine in our mind what would happen if I were to bash particles against each other at the energies that were so big that mm. they would form a black hole mm. and I fall inside a black hole and so on and so forth. So we come up with all these imaginary situations to try to either develop new tools or reach contradictions mm. because we, we come up with a thought experiment and we say, if this happened, then this, then this, then this, we follow some logical chain. And at the end of this chain of reasoning is a contradiction. It's right. something, oh my God, this doesn't make sense. And then we go back, 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 back and see where was the problem. And I think this way of doing research, which is not, which is research in the sense of the world, not of having data and trying to explain, but in the sense of just exploring the space of ideas and going, is a very, it's a much more realistic depiction of how physics really works. In the, now. It's re now. Mm. It's really an exploration. It's really... This idea of the scientific method that often is popularized, that we come up with an hypothesis, mm. we look at an experiment, we test it. I don't think it's a realistic depiction of how physics uh, works. Mm. I think there is very little progress made recently along those lines. That's mm -hmm. my, my feeling. And again, set from someone that... <laughs> no, no, no. But, but just <laughs> tell me, I mean, just to press this, though, I mean, a skeptic might say, well, you know, this is all wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful uh, intellectual stuff here. But, you know, how do you really know that you're just wandering off into stuff, uh, into areas that have nothing to do with what the experimenters are doing in the laboratory? Does that, does that ever worry you? Partially, but uh, sometimes it could, be, it could be true. So sometimes we might be led by a beauty, by elegance, mm -hmm. and that beauty and elegance might be misleading. 
I don't know, supersymmetry is an example. You think that is or might be? Me that might be. Right. That might be. So, right. I mean, some people find it gorgeous, find it, it's, mm. it, it looks like there's something there. And they are exploring this direction of trying to explore these other universes, as I said, where there is some extra symmetry that relates particles called fermions and bosons. Okay? So, so far we haven't observed this, but we are exploring. If the universe were like this, what would it, what would it imply? Yeah. And uh, it might turn out to be a false friend. Perhaps uh, it's just misleading. And uh, okay. so, so that is possible. Now, what I do in practice, which is not so much related to supersymmetry, at least half of what I do, I don't feel very stressed because I know that there are some some models that I'm toying with are models that describe real physical systems. So, mm. But it's not my main motivation. I mean, uh, yeah. it's really to understand what are the rules of, of nature. So Vieira regards himself as working in a mental gymnasium. I like it. But if experimenters at CERN's Large Hadron Collider had discovered particles associated with supersymmetry, or perhaps something else even more surprising, would Vieira have rolled up his sleeves and started to study the new data? Suppose you would observe some kind of string-like objects at the LHC. My goodness. It could be. Some mm. objects that are more extended and mm. so on, and they would be produced when you bash particles at certain angles, and it would be some kind of murky business of trying to disentangle. What exactly are we observing and so on? Then there is rooms for these more theoretical people like me that will try to come up with a very clean, simplified thought experiment where in some parallel universe, as I said, with some fictitious rules, you would bash particles and produce some string-like patterns and so on. Yeah. So that is the direction I would see myself in, not trying to match the precise numbers of the experiment or something, but trying to find out what's the mechanism behind, what's the qualitative mechanism, what, is the, what are the rules that lead for these point-like particles to generate these extended uh, patterns afterwards, what's mm -hmm. the physical mechanism. And I would study that in a toy model, in a, what's a, in a simplified setup that need not describe exactly the real world, but which would give us the intuition of understanding this is how it works. A little bit like a, people that would study, say, computer science, the more formal aspects of it. They understand what an algorithm is. They know that there are these Turing machines that are these fundamental machines that are enough to describe everything in practice. They are not the ones that do the fastest algorithms and that develop the fastest computers. That's a more applied branch of computer science. So I think in physics, yes, finding something remarkable at the LHC or in the sky will, of course, excite people and motivate us to go in a given direction. But in that given direction, there is a huge spectrum and there are the people that are thinking about the concept and the mechanism and those that are trying to really match the numbers okay. and really be as realistic as possible. What, I wondered, is Vieira's attitude to advanced mathematics? So, I think it's a sword, uh, it's like, a, how do you say when a sword has two ends? It's a, a stick with two sharp ends. So, sometimes we think of mathematics in theoretical physics as some kind of inspiration, as some kind of guide, because it's related to the inherent beauty. So, when we see some idea which is very beautiful, with a very sharp mathematical demonstration, with a, a very clean mathematical sophistication, we tend of, to uh, following that. On the other hand, it might be a bit like the sing of the sirens, that sometimes it's a little bit... Uh, I think it can be a bit dangerous because it's so... In a way, it is... 
it can take a life of its own. It can, uh, mm. I think it can be too strong sometimes. You have to be careful. Uh, now, let's just let's probe this danger just for a second. When you say uh, the, the danger is that what? It would takes you away from... It's a little bit addictive. So yeah. if you are studying the mathematical structure, yeah. at some point you think, oh, this mathematical structure is very interesting. So it's like, let me say, give some example. I'm starting to study this uh, particular interaction of particles and I'm seeing some funny group uh, number theory properties appearing. Mm. Mm. Some funny numbers are yeah. showing up and right. so on. And then you compute some more and some other funny numbers come up right. and you start, oh, what is this number theory? Yeah. And you start to explore the number theory, forgetting that you are trying to understand how particles interact. And perhaps the, the, these number theoretical aspects are so beautiful mm. that indeed you go and you mm. explore more transcendental numbers and you start exploring and try. Mm. And indeed, on the other side, you get out where you wanted and that's the answer to your physical problems. Mm. Or perhaps you are going to study number theory and you mm. left the problem you wanted to study. Have you ever had to learn new mathematics in your work? Oh, yes. Really? Yeah. Really? Yes, yeah. yes. Like, what kind of mathematics is that you've had to learn? For example, recently we are studying interactions of particles. So when you study interactions of particles, it amounts to studying functions that depend on very, very many variables. Mm. So that's because you scatter particles and it depends on many parameters, energy, mm. angles, mm. everything. So you have, you give me a, many variables, many energies, many angles, and I tell you what's the result of the experiment, mm. right? Mm. So we need to deal with functions of many variables. And there is a beautiful literature in mathematics of understanding functions of many variables yeah. and what are its analytic Deep properties. Subject. So, yeah. so that was something that I am still learning a little bit. How do we think? It, there is a huge jump from functions of one variable to functions of yeah. many variables. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we do need to develop. I, I did need to develop some intuition for thinking of mm. functions of more variables. And do you uh, find it easy to talk to mathematicians, or is it a chore for you? I think it's either very easy or impossible. <laughs> so I think uh, there are some mathematicians which is wonderful to discuss with yeah. and that you see right away in the beginning that uh, it's going to take half an hour to find a common language, but it's going to be half very Half an easy. hour? That's pretty uh, quick. <laughs> half an hour, one hour, to, find, to understand the terms, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And to, to establish yeah. a dictionary, and then we are going to benefit from discussing. And there are some that you clearly see that uh, mm, it's not, be the same wavelength, it's not yeah. going to work. So what are the biggest challenges to theoretical physicists today? That's a tough question. So, and uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I don't have a huge broad picture of all the field that I can give a very illuminating answer that, uh, about that. So I would just say that uh, I think there is a common feeling amongst physicists that uh, we are unveiling structures that are there in... Uh, in quantum theory and in relativity. And that just by exploring these topics, calculating in them and staring at the results, there seems to be structure and simplicity that a priori was not anticipated. So it often turns out that you spend days and days and days computing and the final results are way simpler than what you could have expected. Hinting that perhaps you are computing the wrong way all along and that there must be a more clever way of thinking, a more clever reformulation. So it seems as if many of the rules we have are definitely correct. We compute, we test, and it works beautifully. Physics is amazing in the sense of making predictions and checking them and they work. However, it seems like 
the way we compute, the tools that we use, they are very suboptimal uh, in some aspects. It looks like we did not find the right way of understanding how particles interact in the sharpest possible way. And whether this is just a technical thing, whether this is just something that will save me as a few hours or a few days or a few months, or whether this is something deep about the nature of reality, it's, that's a gamble. I mm. think it's the latter, but it could be the, mm. the former. So mm. I think it's normally the case that when you find out that there's a much cl more clever way of computing, it also hints at a deeper structure of how things work. So this was the case with Feynman when he found out some nice diagrammatics for studying how particles interact. Mm. It unveiled some deep structure of uh, microscopic particles. But mm. now we are struggling more or less to get rid of those diagrams that Feynman came up with. Mm. Because simple as they might be, they are still way too complicated and there are way too many ways particles can mm. interact. So we are trying to find out a way that we describe the outcomes of experiments without going through the nitty gritty details of understanding mm. the history of particles while we do the experiments, but yeah. rather going directly to the final result. Finally, I asked Vieira to speculate on what discoveries made by theoreticians in the past three decades will endure for, say, centuries. So, of course, there are uh, aspects of physics that uh, I would say holography, which is the, uh, this, uh, the, the great insight of Juan Maldacena mm -hmm. down the corridor, is uh, an idea that I think will be added to the great ideas of, uh, right. of physics. I think now this is a this is a duality like between a field theory uh, and a string theory in a, in a different dimension. It's the basic idea that uh, if you consider any theory of gravity inside a box, mm. so imagine you have our universe and you put it inside a box, and then you go to the surface of the box mm. and you go to study the boundary of the box. Mm that there is an alternative description that just needs to know what's going on on the boundary of yeah, this box. Yeah. And this is something that looks a priori like science fiction. How could I ever describe the interior of the box without looking in the interior of the box mm. and just looking at the surface mm. of the box? Mm. And of course, it, this is why it's called holography, because there is a surface and inside there is a volume. Mm. And just looking at the surface is enough to describe what's inside the volume. Originally, this was proposed as a duality between two theories, as you said. There mm. was one inside and one outside. But now we understood it's more of a framework. So there are many dualities. You can do different, you can play different games with it. You can just take a box and put whatever you want inside and see what you get. Or you can take anything you have at the boundary and try to see what you would get inside. Mm. And uh, I think it is just a new tool, a new way of thinking that will endure. And I think... Uh, I would not be surprised if our ultimate description of quantum gravity, if it will be very, very strongly tied to these ideas of holography. Just to, to ask on that, though, that, that duality you've been speaking about, when that was set up, that was not set up in the space-time in which we live. So uh, you're still confident that it, that it was relevant to, to the real world in which we live, even though he was talking about a special space and, and he's not talking about a particular theory of particles that we're dealing with now. But you, you think that's unimportant? I think that that would be an excellent example of this idea of going to this world of simplified uh, universes, trying to develop some insight and then carrying it back. Originally, it was found exactly doing these explorations, thinking of simpler theories with more symmetry where it was originally proposed. But I think the principle is much more general. First of all, 
if you put a theory in a huge box, how do you know you are inside the box? We might be inside the box. Mm. If the box is huge, we don't see the walls. Mm. So if this if this duality is working in a huge box, it's hard for me to imagine that they would not work in any universe because how could our reality here depend on whether there is a wall infinitely far away? Pedro is a confident talker, evidently comfortable with the way theoreticians are now investigating the fundamentals of nature. He seems quite content to work out in the theoretical physicist's mental gymnasium and convinced that he and his peers can make progress as they understand the interplay between quantum mechanics and relativity ever more deeply. It will be interesting to see if experimenters come up with data in the coming decades that lure him away to a more empirical approach. A few days after I talked with Pedro, I stopped by the office of Douglas Stanford, who was in an office down the corridor at the Institute and gearing up to take up a post at Stanford University. Yes, Stanford at Stanford. I've known him for a few years and been impressed by the progress that he and his collaborators have made in understanding black holes, including the radiation that Stephen Hawking predicted is continually emitted from them. Although this radiation is extremely weak, so it's not surprising that astronomers have not been able to detect it, though no serious physicists doubt that it exists. But Stanford and most other leading black hole theorists don't spend most of their time looking at experimental data on these objects. Rather, they're working in their mental gymnasium furnished by quantum mechanics and relativity theory. I began by asking Stanford the same question that I asked Vieira. How did you get interested in physics? I was sort of interested in physics in high school. I had a good high school teacher. Where was that? In uh, Washington State, Mm. uh, public high school, Anacortes. He gave me a copy of the Feynman Lectures on Physics. Mm. And I read the first first one of those books in the summer after I graduated high school. Liked it. Actually, the first class I took at Stanford was with Lenny Susskind, who Mm. later became my advisor in grad school. Oh, right. Yeah, he had a big influence on my interest in physics. I don't know, it was some combination of that. He's a good teacher, right? Yeah, he's a very good teacher, and he's he's just kind of an inspiring person. So, oh, well, good. I mean, you know, his, yeah, his, um, the way he approaches physics is inspiring. Now, he's not particularly mathematically minded, is he? He's somebody who, no. he's, he's somebody who really is a sort of down and dirty with the concepts and ideas. Yeah, 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 for sure. Do, do, have you do, has, have you inherited that? Do you think or uh... yeah? I especially I mean being at the IAS has been I've inherited it to some extent, but not uh, not as much as Lenny. And I think especially while I've been here, I've appreciated more how math can be really helpful. So you've become more mathematical. You more say. mathematical since I since I've been here. Yeah, he, at the institute, a yes. super advanced study. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. There was sort of a actually it was a disturbing experience for me when I was working on some project and trying to calculate something. And I found a way of calculating what I thought was the answer for this thing, but I didn't have a satisfying argument for mm-hmm. it. And one time I discussed it briefly with Edward Witten, and he basically suggested a different explanation of this mm-hmm. um, based on fancy mathematics. And I found this uh, really disturbing. It was some simple problem that I cared about that didn't have anything to do naively with fancy mathematics and he showed me that you know you can the the right way to derive this is by something that yeah it sounds sort of trivial but it was i I actually found this pretty disturbing 
And when you say disturbing, do you mean that you were interested in how easy it was to do using the fancy mathematics? or, or Yeah, and yeah. how sort of perfectly that fit together. Like, that was just obviously the right way to do it. Right. Yeah. Interesting to hear that Stanford began doing physics by taking a relatively non-mathematical approach. Only later did he become more mathematical when he was specialising in the theory of black holes. I asked him to describe these objects and say why they're so fascinating for him and other theorists today. Black hole is a region of space-time that you can't escape from. Uh, it's the region behind the horizon. And while there are astrophysical black holes, we have amazing experimental evidence for that now with LIGO. But um, that's not exactly the kind of thing that my type of theoretical physicist is interested in. Mm -hmm. We're interested in black holes because they're sort of, how to say it, they're sort of like a ground zero for a war between quantum mechanics and general relativity. Wow, I've never heard you call that before. <laughs> Well, right. it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're just, they're yeah. sort of the point of sharpest tension of some mm -hmm. more general conflicts between. Yeah. So we've got, we've got general relativity, which is a classical theory of, yeah. of, of space and time yeah. and gravity. We've got quantum mechanics, which is, uh, uh, which is certainly not classical. It's, yeah. Um, and, and, and you're trying to basically work out how to, what, melt, can you say, yeah. melt them the, together the, in some way? Yeah, exactly. And the basic puzzle is that, um, black holes, are supposed to be ordinary quantum systems. Mm. And so then properties of space-time and general relativity are supposed to be consistent with behavior of ordinary quantum systems. And there are many ways that that, that seems problematic. And these things are all sort of related in one way or another to the black hole information problem. So, uh, wait, 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 wait. Tell us what the black hole information the black hole, Well, the original version, the black <laughs> hole information problem has sort of become a catch-all for basically all of these problems. Mm -hmm. But the original formulation of the problem was that in classical general relativity, you throw something into a black hole, it never evaporates, it's, and uh, it's just stuck in the black hole forever. Yep. And that seems, well, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's how it is. And in um, Hawking showed that black holes actually evaporate. So if you throw something into a black hole, you wait long enough, the black hole evaporates, it's gone. And Hawking suggested that the information about the thing that you threw in is, is lost forever, but that can't happen in quantum mechanics. So this idea that black holes are ordinary quantum systems means that somehow they have to return the information that you threw into them. That's the original version of the black hole information problem, but it's become, yeah, it's really just become a term for this general conflict between the discreteness of quantum mechanics and the sort of smoothness of general relativity. Okay. And this has obviously captured your imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just mine, lots, oh, lots of people, yeah. yeah. Black holes are the ground zero of the war between quantum mechanics and relativity. Love that phrase. But physicists who like to keep their speculations rooted in observations aren't keen on focusing quite so much attention on these objects, which, after all, aren't easy to observe in detail. Is Stanford comfortable about speculating about the behavior of these objects that are so difficult to observe? The puzzle is there in the theories. So we want to resolve the puzzle theoretically. We, don't, uh, we unfortunately don't have a great hope of resolving the puzzle experimentally. It's a theoretical problem and it should be solved theoretically. So, Do you ever give any thought to testing the experiment? I don't wish to be rude, but I mean... Do, do, yeah. The closest thing to yeah. that is doing numerical experiments. But do you foresee in your lifetime uh, people ha having any experimental handle on this stuff at all? Or? I think the closest thing would be maybe experiments in 
some complicated condensed matter systems or maybe things that people run on quantum computers that would tell us a little bit about how maybe they would tell us something surprising about how complicated quantum systems can behave. Because a black hole, it's an ordinary quantum system, but it's a complicated one. And there could be, I'm sure there are qualitative aspects of that that we're missing. That mm. it, I mean, it's possible some kind of experiment or could shed light on that, but not. I don't think directly on the black hole information problem. It's striking to see that black hole theorists like Stanford are now working closely with condensed matter theorists whose expertise concerns the behavior of solids studied in laboratories. It seems that boundaries in theoretical physics are fast disappearing. It's exciting to be able to talk to physicists in condensed matter theory and sort of feel like... I mean, sometimes it, it's almost like you were talking to somebody who you didn't know this, but you like the same TV show. Yeah, 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 yeah. And is it true that the mathematics is quite similar between the two things, isn't it, uh, in some respects? Yeah, but uh, I think a lot of what is happening is that people are trying to apply the mathematics of one field to, or the not just the mathematics, but the sort of solvable systems mm. in one field to the, to another field mm-hmm. and see what happens there. Mm-hmm. By the way, do you ever have to do any what you might call mathematical heavy lifting? Do you ever have to go out and sort of learn any new mathematics? Um, sometimes, yeah. It's hard for me. I'm not, I don't really have great mathematics instincts, but sometimes... Like, for example, this thing I mentioned earlier, this method that Edward Witten suggested for this problem, I had to learn a bunch of unfamiliar and uncomfortable stuff for that. But, but it paid off. Yeah, but mainly, I mean, I do I do a lot of calculations, but they're using, they're sometimes complicated calculations, but they are basically using simple math. Does Stanford think that astronomers will ever be able to probe black holes? I'm not counting on it, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Not in your lifetime. <laughs> well, certainly, I, certainly is not a good word to use, but it doesn't seem likely in my lifetime. Mm. The closest thing to that, I think, in my lifetime would be some kind of quantum computer that could simulate a black hole and maybe teach you something new about that. But mm-hmm. um, I have a hard time picturing real uh, you know, astrophysical observations helping us too much with mm. these theoretical problems. Just because Hawking radiation is such a tiny effect, and because astrophysical black holes are, you know, they're complicated objects with accretion disks and they're accumulating matter and they're just not very clean. You know, even mm. if we could see the Hawking radiation from them, they're not sort of clean enough objects to ask the types of questions that we care about. But, you know, if you think of 100 years ago, if, uh, you, you'd actually said to some astronomers, well, you know, we'll be looking at gravitational uh, waves from combined uh, collisions between black holes. This is, of course, fanciful. It's never going to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but that's true. But... Uh, even so, <laughs> it's difficult. It's a strange so. Yeah. But for the moment, you you see this as a as a field is is uh, is, is powering on. Yeah, I think. Well, we you know yes, I am aware of the you know the limitations and challenges of trying to do science when you don't have at least easy experimental input, and that's a problem and um, it's a challenge that we face. But there are other there are other things mm-hmm. uh, that you can try to substitute, and one of the things that you know, that has been driving a lot of the progress are relations between different types of theoretical problems. Like we can make contact with sort of real world physics through this, through the duality between space time and ordinary quantum systems. And mm-hmm. there's sort of a, a network of ideas and uh, that you can use uh, relations to different areas 
to sort of partially compensate for the fact that we can't just check stuff experimentally. It seems to me that Pedro Vieira and Douglas Stanford are quite content with their lot. Quantum mechanics and relativity enable them to study a wide range of phenomena in a way that's firmly rooted in experiment. New mathematics is sometimes forced on them in their quest to understand more deeply. But neither Pedro nor Douglas seem likely to drift into specialist mathematics. There's undeniably been huge progress in our understanding of quantum field theory, black holes and condensed matter physics. But there's also no denying that physicists can't wait to have more strong clues from nature to keep their speculations grounded in the real world. The challenge is to persuade nature to speak to us and to understand what it is saying so that we can understand the order underlying the material universe. We'll gradually get closer to the truth, but the quest will, I believe, never end. <laughs>